You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience member and artist designed to demystify the classical music and opera experience. If you enjoy the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, and really, who wouldn't, please consider supporting it for as little as $2 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support. Ruth Rogers from the London Motel Players features in Podcast 84 and she brings a mixture of energy, enthusiasm and hope to the conversation. More and more, it is the voices that support me through the series of podcasts at this really bizarre time and this one is no exception. Honesty and authenticity coupled with spirit and determination is what exudes in this particular episode right from the off, particularly when Ruth explains about her experience overcoming a resistance to practising in lockdown. Something a lot of creative individuals will have experienced as they grapple with their own creative block brought on by the shock and uncertainty of the current situation. The London Mozart players were one of a handful of orchestras that switched on their digital lockdown offering swiftly after new restrictions on movement were put in place. Theirs is a mixture of home recorded performances, curated and annotated video archives and live streams in their LMP at home series. It's a wide range of video content including a live stream now available for catch up from guitarist Craig Ogden and the marvellous pianist and LMP conductor Howard Shelley whose exploration of classical music works as well on camera as it has done at St John Smith Square. Visit londonmozartplayers.com forward slash at home for daily updates or follow the group on Facebook. Rogers and I'm a violinist, lucky enough to be one of the leaders of the London Mozart players. Um, but I also play in a piano trio called the Aquinas Piano Trio. And I guest lead various orchestras and I do some recording of sessions um, and quartet playing and a few solo things. I say I do all this, of course, I'm not doing any of that at the moment, but that's what I used to do before the outbreak of COVID-19. What was the... What has been the impact on you sort of uh, in terms of your mindset as a result of this? Well, it was interesting at first um, is just dealing with the shock of all the cancellations. Um, and, you know, they just they just started coming in thick and fast, as you can imagine. And there was an initial wave of sort of um, March, April and May. And now we're seeing a second wave of cancellations for June, July and August, which 
I suppose, was, was another shock. Um, I'd say initially I found it quite hard to practice because it, it is actually quite hard to practice when you haven't got things to practice for. Um, and then when I got over that and I started practicing, it made me feel so much better. I realized that actually it's every bit as important to me as eating, exercising. You know, it's, it's very necessary for my emotional well-being. And I kind of learnt um, a new approach. So now I'm just practicing Beethoven Concerto, knowing full well that my performance in May that was supposed to happen is not going to happen. But somehow that is it's a different way of working. It, it sort of means there's no time constraints. And so you can really spend a lot of time just on one page and, and not worry that you're not getting further on in it. And so in, that, in a, a sense, is, is really nice. It's... it's um, you know, yeah, it's just a new way of working. Marta, so I'm enjoying practicing. Marta Godlingster, uh, who I spoke to a couple of episodes ago, uh, said a similar sort of thing that that the time the lockdown provided her with an opportunity to immerse herself in scores uh, and really get under the music. Um, it sounds like it's the same thing for you. I just wonder whether there's a that when when you are practicing a work that you know that you're not going to play, is there is there any kind of emotional tension? Is there is there any sort of um, sadness in it, or or is it just that I've just got this opportunity to immerse myself? I I'm a sort of ridiculously optimistic person, so I kind of believe that all these concerts that have been cancelled will be rearranged in the future. Whether that's naive of me to think that, I don't know, but I kind of believe that all the work I'm doing now will not be wasted. It's like money in the bank, and in fact. I've spent a lot of time, particularly since having children, wishing I had more chance to practice without the pressure of, you know, a concert tonight, a concert tomorrow. Um, So in a way, I should just embrace that and not feel sad about it, kind of view it as a bit of a gift rather than rather than um you know a punishment how did you get how did you get through the block you said that there was or you implied that there was some kind of block initially where you couldn't practice how did you how did you get through that was that something that just happened or did you have a did you have a strategy in mind well actually i'm sort of grateful to london mozart players because they introduced this um at home with lmp thing on their website they then asked me to do various things um so a little recital that's going to go out on facebook and um, a, a little thing for families that we're going to do a performance of Ferdinand the Bull. In fact, my son, my six-year-old son, is learning the words to be the narrator. Um, he's going to don his nicest suit. Um, and uh, so I suddenly had to practice because they needed me to do these things. And that's what got me started. And then once I got started, I thought, this is great. And I realised I was, you know, coming out with a bit of a sort of zip in my stride um, and being even nicer to my children than I was before. So it's different. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered where you were going with that. I thought you were saying uh, n- nicer than normal. Um, uh, so it sounds as though actually the LMP's digital uh, endeavour which was very swift. I mean, they did respond very quickly. I've seen a number of orchestras, uh, I mean, a number of uh, musicians too, respond quickly, but they were they were quite swift. It sounds as though uh, that gave their membership a sort of a sense of purpose, or at least gave you a sense of purpose. Definitely, definitely. It just got me started. And then now I, I've broken through that barrier. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm practising for, for myself as well as 
as well as for what I've got to do for LMP. How have the, uh, if you don't mind me asking, how have the children responded to it? Because it sounds as though they're sort of, well, one is six. I'm interested to yeah. know how how do they how do they process through all of this? Do, sorry, do you mean to me practicing, or do you mean to what's going on in the world? Uh, to what's going on in the world? Um, well, you know how children kind of slightly exist in their own little personal bubble. Anyway, I think to a certain extent they they are just existing in that bubble and enjoying having both their mum and their dad around all the time and. Um, we're definitely better if we structure the day. So just plan a few a few things. And um, th- I mean, they're very much aware that something very worrying is going on in the world. But I think children have a just a remarkable way to live absolutely in the moment so that all they're concentrating on at that moment is practicing the cello or, you know, making that art creation or whatever it is. Um, and they're not they're not like us. They don't think about and worry about all the other stuff at the same time. They just they just live in their own little bubble. So I have to say, I think they're absolutely fine. What have you learned from them? Um, that probably their approach is a good one in the sense that perhaps we all just have to take each day as it comes and um, sort of just live in, in the moment and not, worry too much about the future maybe because we'll all make ourselves ill won't we if we if we Mm. think too much about what may lie ahead or what could lie ahead so I suppose I'm just taking each day as it comes along with them and that's probably harder to do for people that don't have children to, to put you in that frame of mind yeah I'd agree with that actually I've um I've been surprised by how uh announcements uh you know i work with various different organizations and i've been surprised about how dependent i've been on conversation so i have spoken to endless people on the phone in a way Mm. that i never did three weeks ago i avoided the phone three weeks ago and now i need to speak to people on the phone nearly all the time which means that every day is exhausting because every every conversation is a, a brings with it a certain emotional in, um, investment on my part uh, yeah. and and it's quite interesting to think that because I don't have though because I don't have children around me who are living in the moment that probably if I did maybe that would sort of reset that that would take the pressure off those conversations um, I hadn't really considered that it's very interesting and, I mean I think children are by nature a, a little bit more selfish perhaps and you know, we, we as we grow up, we, we understand we have to think more about other people. Um, so maybe that's part of it. But it's a fine line, isn't it, between, you know, yes, we, we take each day as it comes and live in a bubble. But also, of course, you know, we want to be aware of what's going on. And, and I'm not saying, you know, oh, I'm fine. I'm not thinking about any of it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, um, well, the children are just a big distraction, I suppose. Mm. And just at that moment that you know we're concentrating on whether my nine-year-old can play a cello scales in tune that it's 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 lovely how that distracts you from yeah. what's going on in the world yeah totally totally but um, in the same way that in january my father died and you know both my children sort of shed a few tears and gave me big cuddles and everything and then you know two days later when they saw me crying they said oh mom what's wrong you know, they'd already moved on. <laughs> um, and that's what children kind of do. And and perhaps we as adults are not as, as good at 
at doing that. Yes, that's that. Uh, bless them. They sound adorable. Um, uh, the so I asked uh, the lovely Joe who put us in, put us in touch to get you to um, give me a list of music that has supported you in this period of time. Uh, what I suspect you are not aware of is that this came about as a result of me listening to one of the works that you selected um, almost on the first weekend, and it was all too much for me, and I couldn't listen to the rest of it, uh, which Aww. is what which is what triggered um, this series of podcasts. So I'm not going to tell you what that is. I want you to tell me about the first one. The first one is the Mendelssohn Octet. What I know the Mendelssohn Octet. of sort of darkness throughout the world um, a piece that is entirely um, full of joy and light and optimism um, is an important thing for us all and so yeah that for me that's why I chose Mendelssohn Octet um, he was only 16 when he wrote it in 1825 um, and he wrote it as a birthday gift for his violin teacher Edward Ritt um, so that for a start, is just lovely. I mean, the fact that he was only 16 is mind-blowing. Yes, it is. Um, but but I think you can hear all this kind of youthful verve and brilliance and optimism. And we all know that, you know, um, you have a kind of outlook on life at that age that that is, hopefully, um, very optimistic and, and before any kind of cynicism or suffering has entered your life. Um, hopefully, again. Um, so, so yes, for me, it just encapsulates optimism. And it's also one of the most fun things to play as a string player. It is <laughs> I wondered. Of, I did wonder about that. Uh, I hear it's, it's sort of intoxicating, actually. I when I was first introduced to it, I was introduced to it because it was so uh, by someone who I think had played it in MYO. Uh, she she will correct me if I've got that wrong or MYCO I don't know one of the two um, yeah and uh, and it was introduced to me because of its um, because it was so rich because it was there was so much detail there was so much industry in it and yeah. and what have you and and I remember listening to it marveling at its creation yeah because it's yeah eight soloists playing uh, and marvelling at that, that it's eight players creating this massive sound. Just this past couple of weeks, I've been listening to it and I've heard the exuberance of it. It is the exuberance that has really come to the fore. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's what what has really interested me about this this period of time that music that had previously been so familiar that um I barely took any notice of it because uh, I listened to it a lot suddenly has taken on a whole different um importance because it's spoken yeah. to me in a different way. When did you yeah. when did you first play it? Oh, I'm sure I probably played it rather badly as a teenager. Um can't remember exactly but um I've played it you know lots of times hopefully a bit better (laughs) (laughs) you're Um, really selling yourself (laughs) (laughs) um I remember one performance which was quite special is that um very briefly my brother's a human rights activist and he did a lot of stuff um with the situation in Burma or I should say Myanmar probably um and cut a very long story short our family set up a charity to raise money for the oppressed people of Burma and uh, I organized a big charity gala concert at the Royal College of Music quite a few years ago now um, but we had all sorts of amazing artists come and play it was, it was I remember it the concert went on far too long because <laughs> Um, because it just did. But we played, we, we finished with the Men's Noctet with all these, you know, amazing players. And it was, as I, I used the word intoxicating because, so I remember at one point looking around and seeing everyone in the group grinning as they played and then looking out to the audience and seeing everyone in the audience grinning. And it just has this kind of joyous um, delight that is rather infectious. And have, you just can't help but be affected by it. Have you played... I heard for the first time today uh, the... Well, it's called the orchestral arrangement. It's it's an arrangement for string ensemble, uh, which I'd not heard before. Um, I don't know. I didn't know about that. So so um, I think it's Ashkenazi conducting. Uh, no, and St Paul's Chamber Orchestra. Um, oh. uh, and it had, a, it had an entirely different effect. It had it had that feel of uh, the Italian symphony and also his early string symphonies, which I adore. Um, yeah. But it, it, for me, it's all about the detail. There needs to be detail in that work. Is it, is it yeah. tricky? Is it difficult? Is it, um, is it a risky play? Or is it, is it just something that everybody throws themselves into and, and hopes for the best? I think the, the first violin part is pretty virtuosic and needs to be very kind of clean and neat and tidy. Um, I think like all those kind of pieces, the hard thing is understanding who needs to come through, you know, which voice needs to be heard. So I think what sometimes happens when you rehearse it is everybody gets a bit overexcited and plays a bit too loudly. Um, And it's understanding how to dissect the texture so that, you know, you hear that viola line there and you hear that cello line there. Um, And the general problem is that the first violinist can be um, slightly drowned out by the enthusiasm of the other seven. Um, <laughs> right, but, okay. You know, but that's what exactly what rehearsal's for. So it's, I would say that the, the hard things about it as a piece are, are mostly to do with balance, really. Um, but, you know, usually that's, that's perfectly easy to sort out in rehearsal. Uh, I saw a link between when I heard that and then I saw the Tchaikovsky uh, on your list. I heard a link between the octet and the Tchaikovsky which was ebullience and industry and and urgency? Well, I suppose what I've been 
trying i mean are we is are we are you subtly segueing into the Tchaikovsky now? <laughs> did you think it was subtle are you flattering me <laughs> oh you're good, The Tchaikovsky I chose very much for the same reason that it's, again, just so, so optimistic. I'm just holding on to things that are optimistic at the moment. Otherwise, you know, if we listen to really depressing music, we're going to get really depressed. Um, And the Tchaikovsky, I have to tell you, is particularly special to me because um, we had the slow movements played during the signing of the register at our wedding. And we then went to Florence for our honeymoon. So that was nice and tidy. Um, and I don't know, part of the reason for choosing the Tchaikovsky was because obviously Italy has been in the news so much and I just feel it's obviously been so utterly ghastly over there. Um, and so to sort of celebrate Italy in a really positive way by choosing this piece felt right to me. Um, and I love so much about Italy. I just, in fact, everything about Italy. I love the language. I think it's such a beautiful language. Love the food. Um, love the kind of spirit of the people. Um, and of course, I think that's probably partly why the virus has spread so much in Italy, because they are such kind of warm people who probably fling their arms around each other, and which is exactly how human beings should be. And it's just so cruel that it's caused so much suffering in their country. But what Tchaikovsky does with his sort of reflection on Florence is depicts this kind of warm sunshine and sort of romance and even sensuality. You know, it's an incredibly joyful piece. And you, if you close your eyes listening to it, you can picture people sipping Prosecco in a sunlit piazza. You know, I can absolutely see that. And I just kind of long for Italy to be restored to its former magnificence. Does it create any sense of yearning in you when you hear it? Or is it is it that it just transports you to a different place? It just transports me to a different place, yeah. Um, and it's another one that I've played a lot, that it's really fun to play. There's that gorgeous tune in the slow movement where the cellist and the first violinist can gaze lovingly at each other. <laughs> as long as their spouses aren't in the audience <laughs> um, but it's just oh it's just such a it's just such a beautiful piece of music i mean tchaikovsky knew how to write a tune didn't he he did uh you've mentioned i notice i've written it down in my notebook uh you've mentioned the word optimism twice and tidy which makes me wonder whether are uh, do you have a tidy house <laughs> um well, it depends. Um, <laughs> sometimes. 
no, I'm not asking. I'm not judging you. I'm just wondering because I just think tidy is such a such a lovely word, and and it makes and, me wonder whether tidiness is important to you. That's what yeah, I'm asking. Yeah, I, like, I do like, and I mean, I'm certainly not a kind of ridiculously tidy person, but I do definitely feel better when we've done a big tidy up. I mean, we did that at the weekend actually, and we got the kids all involved in cleaning bathrooms and hoovering. Wow, they thought it was great fun. <laughs> Um, and um, and uh, and I did. I feel better. I I then feel I can kind of um, concentrate on other things. But I'm not like a tidy freak at all. And obviously, with little boys around, no. I mean, right now is the house tidy? Not particularly. I'd yeah. Say. No, I realise it's a slightly personal question that I was asking. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, no, I was I was interested because actually I. When I recall playing in orchestras and and practicing the clarinet part on my own, and then sitting in an orchestra rehearsal, and then that, I I think that you'll understand this that that experience that one has as a musician when you take something that you have hitherto experienced on your own, i.e. your own line in a score, and then you play mm. it in a rehearsal and you think, oh. Yeah, that's how that fits in with everybody else around me. It's a, it's sort of a three sixty experience. Maybe, yeah, I'm not hearing any nods from you or any agreement. So, so maybe it's just me who experiences that. No, but no, I would, no, I, to- I totally agree. I'd experience um, that as tidy. You know, that that sort of I get how this phrase now fits in with everybody else around yeah, me, and it's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, and and the fugue in the last movement. way that that is the, the definition of tidy that has to be so neat and um yeah just just neat and neat and tidy i can't think of another word <laughs> that's really um, no it's really nice it's a lovely and, word and within within this piece that's so full of kind of passion and flair and sort of you know tossing your hair around um <laughs> then suddenly there's this fuse that that's absolutely got to be meticulous and and that's quite powerful in amongst all the excitement that surrounds it. Um, the the work that so this is not a subtle segue. This is now brutal. Um, the uh, the work that you did select that surprised me was Schoenberg's for Kletternacht. That was the one that I really struggled with to begin with because whilst I get it and I love it, uh, it felt like a bit of an early warning system for me because it was just too intense for me at the point when I listen to it but you clearly approach it differently
Well, I, I can understand why you would think that. Um, and I suppose partly I didn't want to just choose you know, all the same kind of stuff. I mean, you could, as you said, you could argue that Mentenoxet and Tchaikovsky-Souvenir de France are kind of similar in their optimistic... I wasn't ability. judging you. I wasn't judging you. Um, and so, yes, this is c- completely different and much, much darker and much more emotional. Um, but we all need that side of things as well I think and for, for me what it represents obviously the title means transfigured night um, and also do you know I partly wanted to talk about this because I think people immediately or some people immediately think Schoenberg Ugh. Mm. Um, but this was written in 1899 so it's it's not modern at all well I mean it was modern for its time but it's actually sumptuously romantic and people who don't know it who then listen to it will be surprised that oh that's not what i thought schoenberg sounded like because it was way before it is really experimental it's really extreme romanticism isn't it it's almost like he's really really pushing the boundaries and it really can't go any further and it and it is gorgeous for that because it is yeah it's so you know it's 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 not pulling any punches isn't it well well only if if you are and this is me talking about me, really, but only if you're in a mildly emotional state. Yeah. <laughs> because it, it it can... I I found when I listened to it that it was just going to push me over the edge. Although, having said that, it's conclusion that... the I want to call it the coda. I don't think it is a coda because I think it goes on for longer than that. But but the resolution, um, these really gorgeous... Uh, I, I can't tell you because I haven't studied the score but but there is a there is a, a moment when clearly everything is transfigured and and there is um there's some kind of articulation in the strings that or some kind of uh, melodic idea um and textual idea that is just blissful uh, do you know what I mean yes i do i do and it is staggeringly powerful And I think you also get that in Strauss Metamorphosen as well. Um, and it's just, yeah, well, resolution is the right word. And it's part of why I chose it, because it's what this represents sort of symbolically for me is, um, is overcoming despair and overcoming grief. 
Um, so it's a, I mean, the reason it's called Transfigured Night is obviously it's a journey from despair to hope, from grief to joy, and all because of love. So for me, it, 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 that's why it's so powerful. And in a way, that is what I need at the moment is, is that feeling of we will get through this. You know, we will come out stronger and better the other side, even if it doesn't always feel like it. It, it, it. We're on a journey. I mean, if that doesn't sound too tweaky, we're on a journey and we we will we will make it or, or we will endeavour to make it at least. Um, Do I you ever... You, d- sorry. sorry, sorry, Karen. No, you carry on, Karen. Well, no, I, I mean, just for, for the people that are listening to this who don't know the story of the piece, I just wonder if I can just give a tiny bit of background. Would that be all right? Mm. Mm. So it's about a woman, as you probably know, who is bearing the child of another man who she doesn't love, and she's walking in the moonlight with the man that she does love, and she's absolutely consumed by guilt, and she has to tell him. And instead of the response that, you know, any anyone might expect, given that news, um, his response is very surprising. And if you don't mind, I'd love to just quote it. Mm. He says, he says, don't let these thoughts oppress you. Look at this brilliant moonlit world. It is like a cold ocean, but there is a flame within each of us that warms the other and which will transfigure the child and make it mine also. You have brought me life and made me like a child. So he basically gives her the ultimate gift of forgiveness um, and love and, and says, I love you so much. I will love this child as if it's my own. And my gosh, for me, that's so powerful. And so um, it's, it, it is so optimistic in, in the sense that if humanity is capable of that, then it shows all the good that we, we are all capable of as people. And, and that's why I've chosen that now, because I think this is a time for pulling together and finding the best in ourselves rather than crumbling into a heap and, and sobbing that the world's falling apart around us. Do you imagine at this moment in time what it might feel like to play in a concert again? I think it will be remarkable and it will be very special. And I think that the first concert I get to play after all this, I will feel so grateful. And I think the audience hopefully will also feel grateful. I think everyone will be glad, so glad to be there. Yes. And I think, in a way, if this pandemic is going to teach us anything, it's going to teach us never to take anything for granted again. You know, we we're all we're all so used to um, getting kind of exactly what we need when we need it. You know, everything's very instant, isn't it? You just get something from Amazon, it arrives the next day, and 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 in a way, what what we need to be doing is is realising that we can't take anything for granted. And, yeah, I think it'll be a really special time when concerts start up again. I really do.
You've been listening to the thoroughly good Emergency Classical Music Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to the episode, please consider supporting the podcast series for as little as $2 a month. Just visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support.